Romans 12, chapter 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. But do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Have you noticed that folks in America are just about tired of church? It's not as many people going to church anymore, that's for sure. Especially in the younger generations, they're leaving the church in droves. Some of them come back later, some of them don't. Even amongst those that don't leave the church or who come back later, um, 
church doesn't seem to be the priority that it once was. Like even just showing up, right? Attendance trends across the country are showing that, you know, used to a regular attender meant that you were there every week and now regular attender means that you're there like at least twice a month. This has shifted in America. And we feel it locally. All the churches in West Monroe feel it. Same as everywhere else. And we in this room have, you know, some of us that come every week. Of course, Brett and I get paid to come every week, so you can't really count us. <laughs> but there's some folks who are here all the time. If the doors are open, they're there. And then there's others who come when they can, but, you know, they've got kids and they're involved with this and they're involved with that. Or they have this trip or that thing going on at work or, I don't know, life's changed a little bit. There's probably a lot of factors involved with some of the changing trends. But one thing seems certain is folks are a little bit tired of church. It's not quite as exciting as it used to be. Maybe there was a day and time when, uh, when this was like the best excitement you could get, you know, other than the radio and sitting on the front porch. And so people would come out every night for weeks on end to revivals and things in small little churches out in the country. And that was like the big thing to do. Maybe now in a day where there's endless local events and venues and, and TV programs and you name it. Maybe in a day and era where it's not so much about uh, you know things that are scheduled at a certain time, but you, you Netflix it, right? You watch it when it's available. You, you get on YouTube and watch when you want to watch or do what you want to do when you want to do it. And so maybe it kind of feels weird to us in our culture to have something that's set as a certain time every week that we have to try and order our lives around when our culture doesn't work that way. But I don't know. I, I wonder if it's, if it's the way we do church that needs to change or if it's our priorities that need to change or some of both. The good news is we get to talk about the church today and what the original vision for the church was. Because we've been in this series for a long time now, long story short, starting with Genesis and working our way through the whole Bible. And next week we will end with Revelation and the very final words of Scripture. That's kind of a bookend. Creation on the front end at the, and the last words of the Scriptures at the back end. We look to the past, we look to the future. But here in the middle, we come to one last blip on the radar, one last part of the story. And it's actually the part of the story that we find ourselves still living in today. And so maybe in that sense it's the most relevant to our lives today. This thing we call the church. It's a vision that Jesus had that his first disciples launched and carried out by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we are still living in those moments today, 2,000 years later. Part of this thing we call the church. And sometimes we're proud of her. And sometimes we're not so sure. But one thing's for sure. The world has been turned on its head by this thing we call the church. Its influence on the world cannot be overstated. And yet, here in America right now, 
not everywhere in the world, but here, there seems to be some sort of sickness or something that we know isn't quite right with America and the church. So let's turn our gaze back to the New Testament and to these, these final parts of the scriptural narrative and see what was the vision for the church. When we put the church in context of all of scripture, everything we've been studying so far, we find that it's, it's kind of like Israel 2.0. Right? We, we said that Israel was born out of God's desire to reclaim what went wrong with his good creation. Right? To use ordinary people to point other people to the truth. And ultimately to bless all nations as they would come to recognize God as God once again. And his ways as the best ways. So Israel was born, but we know Israel had all sorts of problems, right? And things didn't always go according to plan. God would say, do this. And they'd say, no thanks, we want to do this. And, and so we see the human problem played out throughout the pages of Scripture. And Jesus came as a fulfillment of the promises to Israel. But he also came as the man who would do what Israel was supposed to do, but could not do. The one who would complete or perfect the human life. And not only that, but make a way by which all peoples, not just Israel, can enter into a new creation life. This Jesus way that we preach and that hopefully we pursue, right, as, as people. This, we believe it is the, the very best way that any human being can live. It's the best way to live. And so sometimes we call ourselves around here recently, ordinary people pursuing one extraordinary way. That there's nothing particularly special about us, just like there wasn't anything, you know, anything particularly special about Abraham and his descendants. They're just kind of ordinary people. They messed up a lot. And we've got our hang-ups, too. Uh, we pretend we don't for an hour on Sunday sometimes. But, <laughs> but in reality, we've got our problems for sure. We're, there's nothing about us that makes us special or a cut above the rest. The only thing extraordinary about us is the way that we're trying to live. And it's not something we came up with on our own. It's something that was given to us by grace undeserved, a way of life that is just better. A way of life in which you find rest and peace and freedom from the things that bind us up and chain us up in this life. Freedom from fear. Freedom from this thing we call sin, which leads to things like fear and a whole host of the problems that we deal with in our lives. So, in a sense, this is the vision for the church. Israel 2.0. Just an ordinary group of people pursuing an extraordinary way of living. The Jesus way. 
in doing so, as we live into that, we actually take part in what Jesus was doing. Of reclaiming what hell had stolen, what sin had stolen from his good and perfect creation. You might call it a recreation project. We believe that it'll reach its full recreation when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, he's recreating us from the inside out. And we are that Israel 2.0, that city on a hill that they were supposed to be. That when people look at us, not necessarily you by yourself, though maybe you by yourself, but certainly us as a group, they see a way of living, a way of doing relationships that is starkly different from theirs and yields better results. They see a people with a peace that they can't understand, with a generosity that they don't see anywhere else, and so forth. So that's kind of Jesus' vision for the church in a nutshell. And the question is, how do you get there? And, and part of the reason that we've missed maybe that boat of how you get there is because, like we talked about a little bit last week, we've gotten the mission wrong a little bit. We talked about the mission last week and how Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. And somehow we thought... We came to believe that the mission was to save people from going to hell. To get them to pray a prayer. To get them to believe. And maybe even to come to church. <laughs> and so we have now this vision of the church. That is, okay, you get saved. And then you go to church to worship until you get to heaven. Is that pretty accurate <laughs> description of probably how most people view the church? The church is the place that you show up on Sunday morning to worship because you're saved and you wait until you get to heaven. You sing songs about heaven. You, you, know, you dream the dream and that's, that's the goal. But that's pretty different from what Jesus said the mission was because he said the mission was to go and make disciples not saved pew sitters. I wonder, do you think Jesus envisioned this? Maybe he did. I'm not bashing this. I obviously like this. I, I, I do this for a living. Um, so, but I just wonder, did, did, was his ultimate dream to have you know, a band up here or a choir or whatever, to have you know, a nice baptistry back there and a stained glass window and to have all of us showing up once a week to sing some songs and listen to me and, and then pray a prayer and go home? I don't know. When we read the New Testament accounts of what the church looked like then, it just seemed different. Of course, their culture was different. They didn't have church buildings yet. So, I mean, it was going to be different. Hmm. But this discipleship piece has to be in there or we'll never be an ordinary people pursuing one extraordinary way. We'll just be a bunch of saved people sitting around worshiping until we go to heaven. Which I just emphatically state, I don't see anywhere that Jesus had that vision for the church. So, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? 
Because the vision seems to be, instead, that a whole bunch of his disciples would go and make a whole bunch of more disciples, and then all these disciples would do life together while inviting more disciples to, to join up and learn and pursue this extraordinary way of life. That seemed to be the vision. So how, what does it mean to be a disciple? And we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to talk about it a little bit more because I don't believe we can be the church until we figure out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's something we can continue to wrestle with, but at a very simple point here, we can, we can say what it means to be a disciple. And this, I think, helps a lot too with, with your own uh, you know, wrestling with, am I a Christian or not? We, we wrestle with that, at least some personalities of us at some stage in life. We wrestle, am I really saved or not? Because when you make it just about, well, you know, I prayed a prayer, I, I, I think I believe, um, and then, but the devil plants those little lies in your head and you just, you start doubting and wondering, am I a Christian or am I not, am I really going to be saved? When Jesus comes back and judges the living and the dead, where am I going to stand with him? Do I have enough faith? And all these questions. But, but this is a simpler question. Are you a disciple of Jesus or not? I'm not asking whether you're a good disciple of Jesus or not. I'm just asking, are you a disciple of Jesus or not? And so let's explore that for a little bit. Um, in other areas of our life, we would know instantly whether we're someone's disciple or not. Uh, I was joking with Julie the other day about uh, when I, I guess this dawned on me and I was talking to her and uh, so I was like you know you would know because she watches like can I say, can I say okay. she watches like tutorials on YouTube you know on, on girly stuff alright and so so you know and she's got like a few girls that like you know she likes the way they do their makeup or she likes the way they do their hair or whatever and so she watches their videos to figure out how to do it the way they would do it, right? And, and so she's a disciple of those people in that area of her life, right? That's, she either is or she isn't, you know? And she would know whether she is or she's not, you know? She would be able to say, I'm not that girl's disciple. Her hair looks crazy. Uh, you know, I am this girl. So if you wanted to learn to paint and you were watching PBS one morning, and you saw this guy. Everyone know who this is? Oh yeah, Bob Ross. And, and say you, you, know, you, you wanted to learn to paint like that. Well, you might start by just watching PBS a lot. <laughs> right? And, and you would say, yeah, I'm kind of a, a beginner disciple of, of Bob Ross. I'm trying to figure out how to paint like him. And then you'd find out, well, they offer like instruction on how to paint like him. They offer kits. You can go to classes from Bob Ross instructors. And so maybe like as you really get serious about this, you really buckle down and start learning how to paint those happy little trees. <laughs> and if I said, are you a disciple of Bob Ross? You'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Or maybe you want to be an architect. I don't know if you've ever seen this house before, but it's a, a house designed by the famous American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And he had this knack for building buildings that fit into the natural landscape that just kind of looked like they were meant to be there. 
And this one always mesmerized me. I was like, how cool would that be to have like a creek in your house? (laughs) Of course, then when you're a homeowner and and you're like trying to get water out of your house, you're like, why would I ever want to build a house? Anyway. Say you really wanted to be able to design stuff like that. Well, you'd probably, you might start by like reading books about Frank Lloyd Wright. But then at some point you might say, you know what family, this summer we're going on a vacation and we're going to travel around and see all the houses and buildings that Frank Lloyd Wright designed. And we're just going to check them out, or at least my favorite ones. And so you'd go around and you'd travel and see them. And then at some point you might try to like replicate his blueprints. And then, this is the really cool part, at some point you might want to design your own design thinking, how would Frank Lloyd Wright design this? If he was going to put a house right there where there is no house, how would he draw it up? And you, having studied Frank Lloyd Wright, having seen his houses, having practiced drawing his drawings, you would then imagine and apply that what you've learned so far and, and try to sketch out something that might be what he would want there and it would probably be lousy. But maybe you'd try again and again. And if along that process someone asked you, you know, what, what architect do you aspire to be like? Well, you'd say, Frank Lloyd Wright, absolutely. Absolutely. But what if you wanted to learn to live the best possible way? What if you wanted to learn to live the wisest way? The way that human beings were designed to live. What if you looked around and saw all the mess of your life and the mess of everyone else's life and you said, there's got to be a better way to live than the way I'm living. You know, my finances are a wreck. My marriage is a wreck. My kids are a wreck. My grandkids are a wreck. I don't know what your situation is. My job, I can't stand it. I can't stand people. Why do they got to be people around here? I can't even drive home without someone cutting me off. There's got to be a better place or a better way or something. So what if your goal was to figure out how to live the best possible way there is to live? Who would you pick as your disciple? I mean, as your mentor, as the person to become a disciple of. Would you pick Gandhi? Aristotle? Abraham Lincoln? Who would you pick? There's there's been a lot of great people. I picked Jesus. I believe that he resurrected from the dead, see? And so then that kind of makes you take a look at what all he said and did. So I don't know of anyone else who had a whole bunch of people claim that they rose from the dead to the point that they were willing to put their lives on the line for this claim and went around teaching people to live better lives at no gain to themselves. So I I don't know of anyone that, you know, other situation like that who claimed to be the very word of God and who taught us to live and left us with a mission of go and make more disciples of me and teach them 
to live the way I taught you to live. And so if you want to know the very best way to live, I believe there's only one way to turn. Only one person to whom you can become a disciple of and, and, and begin to figure out this better way to live. And if you do that, if you sign up for that, you become part of this thing, this gathering of people. Male and female, every gender, every race, every culture, they're all over the globe. They know no boundaries. They gather here and they gather there and they're called the church. They're just a whole bunch of ordinary people pursuing an extraordinary way. In the passage we read that you thought we'd never get to, Paul describes this discipleship life. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your true and proper worship is not to show up here and sing songs, some that you like and some that you don't. Your true and proper, proper worship is to deny yourself, to make sacrifices of your preferences, of things maybe that you are naturally oriented towards even. To lay those down so that you stop conforming to the pattern of this world, but instead of being transformed by the renewing of your mind, he says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We might even say, then you might be able to live the best possible way, a good and pleasing and perfect way. For surely, that's God's will, because that's how God created it to function in the first place. And so we have this task before us as the church, to become a people, brothers and sisters, offering our bodies as living sacrifice, sacrifices, laying down our preferences, ceasing to conform to the patterns of this world, but instead being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when we do that together as a group, Paul points out that we become a body. He says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function, and so in Christ, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Here's something really cool about the church. We know that we believe as Bible-believing, Jesus-believing people. We believe that this body and your body, they don't make up who we actually are, right? We believe, in fact, that this is just like a dwelling place, temporary, for our spirit. That part of us that, apart from this body, wouldn't have any physical representation. 
But this body allows me and your body allows you to interact in the physical world. This is what's so cool about this, this metaphor that Paul uses. Together, we become the body of Christ. And a body is a dwelling place for a spirit. And when we become the body of Christ, we together become the dwelling place for Christ's spirit. Each of us have been trying to figure that thing out on our own. Paul says, together, we make up the body of Christ. By yourself, you're just an ear. Or whatever. But when we get together, we're a whole body. And that's where his spirit dwells. And then when people see this body, they see the physical representation of the spirit dwelling within it. That's the church. And that's why being a part of this group is so important. Being a part of a group of believers who are pursuing this extraordinary way together is so important. Because by yourself, you're not the body of Christ. You're just a part of the body of Christ. So my question for you as an individual is, well, I've got several, but one, be where does being a part of a group of believers like that rank for you in your life? Another question that we have to wrestle with, and especially the leadership of our church has to wrestle with is, are we doing this the way we ought to be doing it? Are there things that we need to call ourselves to as a church that would place us in, in a better position to become disciples of Jesus and not just worship attenders? But today, I, the most important thing that I want to do is I, I want to leave you with something tangible that you can begin to do this thing that Paul described as being transformed by the renewing of your mind, the, the act of a disciple. And so first thing I want to do is just read to you the rest of the passage that we read earlier from Romans chapter 12. And as I do, I want you to consider this as as what it is, a summary of the teachings of Jesus, a summary of a vision for the church, of how we ought to live, what we ought to look like. When people look at the body of Christ, what should they see? Verse 6 says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. 
If it is to lead, do it diligently, and if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And just to pause there for a moment, it's worth taking time to figure out what is your contribution to the body of Christ. And if you're not sure, try something. And if that's not it, stop. Try something different. September 9th, we're going to have our annual Servant Sunday. And we always have a list of things that you can do and serve and engage with in our church. And a lot of you already do a lot of things on those lists. Uh, but maybe you need to change it up a little this year. Some of you, maybe you're still kind of new around here and you're still kind of figuring out your place in things. And I know it can be hard in big churches and small churches to get plugged into the right place. But we want to help make that happen. And so look forward to that day. But let's carry on here. He says, love must be sincere in this body of Christ. We should hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Hmm. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, at least as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As in even beyond these church walls. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That comes from the Proverbs. And finally, <laughs> Jesus lived this out. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We read a list like that. And we tend to view it as a checklist. And we go through the checklist and we say, well, I, I do okay with that. Not with that. And I need to just do this, this, and this. I want to challenge you to view lists like this as a vision, as a picture of what it looks like to be the body of Christ. The, the physical representation of the Spirit of Jesus in this world. That's the picture that we're striving towards. But the best way to get there is not for you to try harder to do, to check those things off that list. The way to get there is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And one of the ways that we do that is we have to engage with pictures like this. We have to get the truth into our minds. And we have to weed the lies out. And when we read passages like this, we'll come up across things that are like, man, that sounds really different from what I've believed and what the whole world seems to believe. And so then you begin the process of soaking this in and saying, no, I'm going to choose to say this is truth and that's a lie. And so you begin to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So my challenge to you this week, just at a very practical level, is why not take this passage, Romans 12, the whole chapter, and engage with it all week. I know that I, we gave you one last reading plan, and maybe you've been doing those, and you want to continue doing it. I would, I would write you a pass just to do Romans 12 this week instead if you can only do one. Or maybe you can do the reading plan in the morning and Romans 12 at night or vice versa. I don't know. But what if you would commit to engaging with this chapter of Scripture that describes the church and what it means to be disciples of Jesus? What if you... Okay. If you got the note card... And you, maybe just write these four things down. I'll be fast. So get ready to write fast. Maybe I won't be fast. I'm going to try to be fast. <laughs> Not making promises. <laughs> First, what if you read it every day? Maybe more than once a day. And you're like, well, that seems absurd. Why would I read the same thing over and over again? But you're the same guy that sits in front of the TV and watches the same commercial over and over. Why do you think they show you the same commercial over and over? <laughs> and you think it wouldn't maybe be wise to put something on repeat that's actually true? So read it. That's the first one. Second one, pray it. As in pray through that. As you read it, ask the Holy Spirit to show you things that you believe in your life that are, that are not real. And you know what you believe by what you act out. And to begin to pray about Him helping you with this mind transformation, this life transformation that happens through renewing your mind. Help Him to ask the Holy Spirit to live in you, to write His law on your heart. Pray through it. Third, write about it. Find some paper, find some pencil. If you just have to type, type it, but there's something about a pencil and a piece of paper. They say part of that is you can't write as fast as you type. Uh, well, I'm not saying all of you can type fast, but, <laughs> but for most of us, we can't write quite as fast as we type and so it forces us to slow down a little bit and it allows us a little more time to think but anyway journal about it maybe you want to write down your prayers to God about it or maybe you just want to think about and journal about what's going on with you and that passage of scripture as you think about it as you dwell on it what do you recognize in your life and just begin to get some things on paper and fourth 
I want to challenge you to talk about it. You might write down, say it. If you want it to rhyme, you could write down, read it, pray it, write it, say it. <laughs> read it, pray it, write it, say it. It's an easy way to remember. But take this passage, Romans 12, read it every day. Pray about it every day. Write something about it every day. It doesn't have to be like an hour-long journal session. Just get out your paper and write something down. And then find someone to talk to about it. Work it into your conversation some way. And that may be the hardest part. We prefer just to stay on weather. But man, if we're going to be the church, we've got to figure out how to move past the weather. Start with me. <laughs> it's real easy to talk about the weather. And the weather's nice. We ought to talk about the weather. I'm definitely not picking on Marlon for talking about the rain. <laughs> All y'all thought I was talking about Marlon, but no. <laughs> We've got to figure out how to talk about being a disciple of Jesus. How to talk about Jesus. And, and his way of life and what we're struggling with and what we're getting right and what we're learning and what we're figuring out. and We've got to start encouraging one another and thinking about what one another, one another need to hear and so forth. So read it, pray it, write it, say it. Romans 12, you've got an assignment. Embark on a journey. Be a disciple of Jesus. Be a part of this thing we call the church. And as you do so, consider, where does the church fall amongst your priorities? And what would happen if we all began to take it a little more seriously and we all became devoted disciples, having our lives transformed by the renewing of our minds? If it happened on a global scale with one-seventh of the world's 7.6 billion Christians engaging this way, what do you think would happen? Forget the world. If, if we just took America, and it's three quarters that identify as some kind of Christian, but let's just throw out two-thirds of them as worthless, and stick with, let's just say there was only a quarter of America's population that was, got serious about the faith that they claim. What would happen in our nation? What if just in Washita Parish, the 90,000 people who claim to be affiliated with Christ begin to live that way? For that matter, how about just the 70 or 80 that show up here? I guess there's more than that, but that's about what we run of folks that show up on an average Sunday morning because we can't all make it at the same time. But There's a pretty small group in Ephesus a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, that turned that entire metropolis on its head. Started riots. So what would happen if we got serious about our faith? Just us. What would happen in your family? At your work? at your school if you took this on and ramped up your effort to live as a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, I thank you for the church. We know we've made it a lot of things that you probably never envisioned. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make us true disciples. Make us the body of Christ here in West Monroe. Help us to do and to live according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.